We are continuing our series in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 4. Discouragement has been defined as to lessen the confidence of and to be disheartened. If that's discouragement, and it is, then Nehemiah and his men were discouraged. This passage, starting at Nehemiah 4 and verse 10, teaches us that there were four specific reasons for that discouragement. Don't miss them, as one or more of these reasons could be the cause for the discouragement some of us, including me, are feeling. The first reason is that the people had lost some strength. The people had lost strength. That means fatigue had set in. Notice verse 10. Then Judah said, Then Judah said, meaning the inhabitants of Judah said, For those that haven't been here, and some haven't, ancient Israel originated as a united nation that consisted of twelve tribes. Then in 931 B.C. something happened. In 931 B.C. that nation was divided, just as our nation was divided, into two separate parts. There was a northern kingdom consisting of ten tribes that continued to be called Israel. Then there was a southern kingdom consisting of the two remaining tribes that was called Judah. Jerusalem was located in that southern kingdom called Judah. Jerusalem's fortified and protective wall had been devastated, torn down after the third Babylonian invasion, and so Nehemiah was there to rebuild that wall. And that statement, then Judah said, means that after Nehemiah's reconstruction project had started, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those residents there located in Judea, made this discouraging statement. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. Those laborers that were doing all that reconstruction and rebuilding Jerusalem were tired. The people had labored hard for an overextended period of time. And now those people were fatigued. Utter exhaustion had set in. Remember from last time, verse 6 said that at this particular juncture, at this point in time, the wall was half finished. So that project was half completed. Notice Nehemiah 6 verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Aluel in 52 days. That entire construction project from beginning to end required just 52 days. That was amazing. Record time. 52 days is just under two months. So do the math. Since the wall was half completed and the entire project was 52 days in length, in duration, that means at the time of Nehemiah 4 and verse 10, those people had been building on that wall at a maximum rate, nonstop, building, 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 building for almost a solid month. The result was that those people were tired. There weren't any additional construction crews scheduled to relieve them. There weren't holidays, no long weekends, no vacations. There was no time off. Also, remember that according to verse 9, some of them also had to stand guard around the clock in rotating shifts in order to protect this project against a possible invasion from Sambalad, Tobiah, and friends. And because Nehemiah had to assign some of the men to stand guard against a possible invasion, that meant that the actual number of people that were then available to work on the wall was drastically reduced. So in order to do the job that needed to be done, some of the people, and at times probably all of the people, had to work double shifts. So the people were beginning to show signs of fatigue. Extreme tiredness had set in. Exhaustion is a cross-generational problem. As centuries after that, the apostles also suffered from serious fatigue. Notice Mark 6, verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done, and those men had been performing miracles, and told him what they had taught. Verse 31. And he, Jesus, said to them, Come aside 
by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Notice, rest a while. For there were many, many people coming and going, and they, those apostles, did not even have time to eat. The apostles had busied themselves ministering to the needs of all the people, and there were masses of people. The men had busied themselves to where those men didn't even have time to meet some of their own basic needs. The apostles didn't even have time to eat. So Jesus told his apostles to go to a private location where they could spend time together alone and rest. If intense fatigue sets in, and we're down in a physiological sense, then soon we're down in a psychological sense, and that psychological bottom is called discouragement. Jesus understood that probable discouragement was just around the corner for his apostles. So he told them to go on to an uninhabited desert area where no one else was around, where none of them were obligated to minister to someone, where all of them could just rest. Jesus understood that rest time isn't waste time, so he told them to rest. Let me mention five practical things that can help us minimize the problem of fatigue. This is important because if we can minimize fatigue, then we can minimize one of the principal causes of discouragement. And we're just going to touch on them. The first thing is to exercise. Part of the reason some people are easily tired and have no energy is because they don't ever exercise. Even mild exercise rejuvenates our bodies and positively affects our mental attitude. That's the reason exercise should be habitual. Sporadic exercise isn't exercise. Second, get adequate rest. Our bodies need rest. I cannot function for more than one night on four and five hours sleep. I wish I could. I could get more done, but I can't. I need about seven hours. I don't have insomnia, meaning I don't I don't have a problem sleeping. The problem I have is actually getting to bed. Um, That's the problem I have. Third, eat healthy foods in reasonable amounts. Junk food is not the answer to discouragement. I admit I am susceptible to sugar. Dark chocolate contains antioxidants, so dark chocolate is considered good. So I conclude then that more dark chocolate is better. (laughs) That's never happened with vegetables, though. Never. Fourth, take time off. That could mean many vacations or extended vacations. It could mean that even on a daily basis, just creating some diversion, some sort of downtime, we should give our bodies and minds a break and take some time off. Fifth, work during peak energy times. We do our best when we have the energy to operate at maximum efficiency. If we're a morning person, hope he is a morning person, I am not. If we are though, we should use those morning hours as our most productive time. And don't waste that time on something else that might not be as productive. I am a late night person. I, I've had to be in part because there are virtually no interruptions, some exception, virtually though no interruptions between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. So that's my most productive time. I know that's strange, but that's when I do my best work. Um, Going back to Nehemiah 4, Nehemiah's men were in need of a serious break. Those men were tired and fatigued. The problem was there wasn't time for time off. There just wasn't. And then there's another part to this problem that compounds this problem of fatigue. Some of the newness of this reconstruction project had worn off. At the beginning, it was probably exciting to be rebuilding this Jerusalem wall. But now after almost a month of endless hours of labor, it had become exhausting. There was no more excitement. Instead, there's just a tiredness that had set in. The newness had completely worn off. These people were just dragging. And consequentially, discouragement had set in. The newness can wear off of most anything. A job. We're excited about a job. And then the newness wears off and we're not so excited. A promotion. Another position. 
Hobbies can be exciting at first. A marriage can be exciting at first, and then it's just marriage. Um, a purchase can be exciting. A house, a car, something new. But no matter how much what it is and costs, it doesn't matter. The newness can wear off and discouragement can set in. Another thing to consider, do we understand that these builders, laborers, were on the second half of this project and not on the first half? That was a significant factor. For instance, some of us have been on a vacation where we have driven more than a thousand miles to a predetermined uh, destination, a location where we're going to vacation. If so, then we probably notice that although a thousand miles is a thousand miles, and it does require time, but driving that distance to that vacation destination wasn't all that difficult. The reason is because the simple anticipation of a vacation is sometimes more exciting than the actual vacation itself. It seems that everyone is pumped up about going on this trip, so the actual drive getting there isn't so bad. But did we notice? Did we notice that the second half of that trip, meaning the drive home from vacation, seemed twice as long and just wasn't that much fun? Most often the second half of a project is more difficult to finish than is the first half. In Nehemiah's case, fatigue had set in, and the second half of that wall seemed harder to construct than the first half. His men and women, women were a part of those crews, his men and women were tired. The people had lost some of their strength. The second reason for that discouragement is the people had lost some vision. Some vision. Notice verse 10. Then Judah said... The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish. This word rubbish, as it is used here, means dry earth, debris, broken stone, pieces of wood, and hard, dry chunks of mortar. This reconstruction project, all of a sudden, started to seem bigger than it was. Small pieces of dirt started to resemble massive mounds of dirt and debris. The people couldn't envision a finished wall because they were so preoccupied with those piles of rubbish. All around them were rubbish, debris, dirt, stones, wood, and mortar. The laborers couldn't see past the rubbish and see the final result. So there was no more vision on the part of the people. I used to resemble the slogan, a cluttered desk is a sign of genius. But I have since learned that clutter isn't that cool, because if there are stacks of file folders, books, journals, and hundreds of miscellaneous papers just scattered across my desk, then I can't find things, and it's frustrating, and so it becomes discouraging. So I have to envision an uncluttered desk, a more organized and arranged desk, in order to get motivated to do something about the clutter. Dr. Viktor Frankl was an intelligent and educated Jewish man that was forced to endure the ravages of a Nazi concentration camp. And like the inmates around him, he became extremely discouraged. He was in a desperate state. Because of severe malnutrition, he actually felt as if he could die at any moment. As a practicing psychiatrist, before the Nazis arrested him, he had developed an approach to counseling called logotherapy. And through the means of that particular therapy, he tried to help his patients find and see some meaning in their suffering. He told the story of how he utilized that approach that same approach on himself. The only meaning he could find in being held prisoner in that concentration camp was that at some point, if he were able to survive that torture, then he could tell others how his therapy had worked on himself. He pictured in his mind, envisioned a future time when he would be able to be lecturing to a group of people on the subject of logotherapy, telling them how he survived those terrible, horrible concentration camp experiences. Through seeing that, envisioning that, and adding that meaning to his experience, he was able to gain significant strength to survive. And true to his vision, 
He did survive to tell that horrific account to thousands and thousands of people in public lectures across the United States. The point is that Dr. Frankel retained his sense of vision. So he was no longer as discouraged. Vision enables someone to minimize discouragement. All of us can see what is now. We can see the present. All of us can see the now. The secret to surviving and the secret to success is being able to see what could be. To see what could be. Envision that. Some people see things as they are now and question why. Why? Then other people see things as they could be and question, and why not? Why not? I can remember at our third church start. This was in Kansas City, and we had leased some space consisting of two suites in a new strip shopping center. And uh, we were the first tenants. Dirk's Sports Bar and Grill were the second. And uh, we had a great agreement, although... We didn't frequent his establishment often. Um, but uh, we were there. We just signed the lease agreement. And we were going to be, as I said, the first tenants. And so the building improvements haven't been made. But one afternoon, one of our core members and I stopped off at the site. We just wanted to see if construction had started on the inside. Um, it hadn't actually started. It was just barren walls and a concrete floor. And the doors were locked, so we couldn't get in. So we pressed our faces up against those huge panes of glass. And I said, uh, I said, Marty, see that area over there? I said, that's where the nursery will go. And the platform will be to the right of that wall there. And then chairs will be arranged in a fanned-out semicircle configuration around that platform. And then the entrance will open up into a small foyer area to our left. And our children's classrooms are going to be through that door in the rear of our suite. And I'm describing the configuration of this build-out. And this was something I was familiar with doing. I'd done it earlier at other previous church starts. He hadn't. He'd never seen this. He seemed confused. He had this, you know, deer in the headlights stare on his face. He seemed baffled. He said, Pastor, I have to trust you on this because I just can't see it. It was interesting that on the date of our first anniversary, he shared that incident. He stood up and said to the congregation, Pastor brought me here some months before we ever had our first service, and he showed me specifically where and how this building was going to be laid out. He said, I couldn't see it then. But after now, after being here for these months, I can see it perfectly. See, all of us are able to see things as things presently exist. The question is, are we able to see things as those things could be? Do we have a sense of vision? Do we just see ourselves as we are in this discouraged state? Or do we see ourselves as we could be if we committed ourselves to change? I might interject a footnote. One of the most incredible visionaries from modern times was Walt Disney. Um, Walt Disney actually spent part of his childhood in Kansas City. My third grade teacher at Hale Cook Elementary School was Mrs. Sheaf. She attended school with Mr. Disney, and uh, she would tell us stories. She told us he would often get in trouble in class because instead of listening to the teacher, he was drawing cartoons. See, boys and girls, what happens when you don't pay attention in class? You could end up like Mr. Disney. Um, but he, 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 was, he was amazing. Now, if, you're, if, you, if you've got this thing against the mouse, I understand. But if you've never been, I would recommend visiting the Walt Disney Family Museum at the Presidio in San Francisco. It records his visioneering from his childhood until his death. It is a fascinating place. We have to maintain a sense of vision. If we lose that, we're going to hit the skids. Number three, the people had lost some confidence. Confidence. Verse 10, one more time. Then Judas said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. Those residents from Jerusalem 
and those members of those construction crews were confessing to one another that they just weren't able to rebuild this wall. The people had been disillusioned and said to themselves, we just can't do this. It's just not possible. Now remember, the project is half completed. But the people said, no, we can't finish. Their confidence was depleted, and in the absence of confidence, there was a sense of discouragement. If strength is lost, if vision is lost, then confidence becomes lost. And if we lose confidence, we're going to get discouraged no matter who we are. Someone said, the man who is convinced he can, and the man who is convinced he cannot, are both right. The problem was those people were convinced that this project just couldn't be finished, just couldn't happen. Thomas Edison, a familiar name, was someone that refused to be discouraged. His contagious optimism affected all those around him. His son, in his biography about his father, recalled a freezing December night in 1914. This was the man, remember, this was the genius that was ultimately responsible for the microphone, the phonograph, the incandescent light, the storage battery, movies, and more than a thousand other inventions. Altogether, he registered 1,094 patents with the U.S. Patent Office. But more than a genius, Edison was an optimist, and his optimism was infectious. There was a time when he was still having unsuccessful experiments on the nickel-iron alkaline storage battery. He had devoted almost a decade to that single project, and that had put Thomas Edison on a financial tightrope. The only reason he was still financially solvent was the profit he had received from the movie and record production. On that December evening, spontaneous combustion had broken out in the film room, and within minutes, all the packing compounds, celluloid for records and film of flammable goods were up in flames. Fire companies from eight surrounding communities arrived, but the heat was so intense and the water pressure so low that the attempt to douse the flames was futile. Virtually everything was destroyed. At first, he couldn't find his father, so the son became concerned. Where is he? Where is he? Is he safe? Where was he? With all of his assets going up in smoke, would his spirit be broken? After all, he was 67, and that was no age to start over. Then in the distance, the younger Edison saw his father in the plant yard actually running toward him. And he was shouting, Son, where's mom? Where's mom? Go get her, son. Tell her to hurry up and get down here and bring her friends. They're never going to see a fire like this again. Early the next morning, before dawn, with the fire barely under control, Edison called his uh, employees together and made an incredible announcement. He said, men and women, we are rebuilding. He told one man to lease all the machine shops in the area. He told another one to obtain a wrecking crane from the Erie Railroad Company. And then almost as an afterthought, he said, oh, I almost forgot. Does anyone know where we can get some money? He explained to them, we can make capital out of this disaster. We just clear out a bunch of this old rubbish, then we'll build bigger and better on top of the ruins. And he did. Shortly after he made that announcement, he yawned, rolled up his coat for a pillow, curled up on a table, and immediately fell asleep. He never did lose his confidence. Someone said that success comes in cans. You can, I can, and together we can. You can, I can, and together we can. Nehemiah said to his people, listen, this is still possible. We're halfway there. We can rebuild this wall. We can hang those gates. We can finish this project. People, we can make this happen. And together the people did. Philippians 4.13 is one of my favorite verses. We should all memorize this simple text. Paul said there, I can, notice, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Please notice there are two basic con 
concepts found in this passage from Philippians 4. Both cockiness and confidence are found in this one verse. Some people confuse someone's confidence for cockiness. And that's understandable because sometimes there's a fine line between them. I can see where cockiness and confidence do have some similarities, but I also see where confidence and cockiness are not one and the same thing. This phrase, I can do all things, period, I can do all things, describes cockiness. This is the attitude that there's nothing, nothing I can't do. No sweat, no problem, piece of cake, I can do it. Remember this take from... Muhammad Ali's famous line, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, who's the greatest, it's Ali and me. That would be cockiness, pure cockiness. Now then there's the phrase, I can do all things through Christ. That's describing someone's confidence. Did you notice that Christ is the singular difference between cockiness and confidence? Cockiness is a form of selfish pride. Confidence, though, comes from God, from our faith and reliance and trust on Jesus Christ, who can make himself big in and through us. He can show off in and through us. Confidence is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, don't misunderstand this phrase, I can do all things. That phrase doesn't mean I can do all things, period. No. It means we can do all those things that God intends us to do. All those things God desires, God wants us to do. Jesus Christ can enable us, strengthen us, equip us to do all that God intends for us to do. If God intends for us to do something, then God can enable us and strengthen us and equip us to do what He intends for us to do. God would never ask us to do what He wouldn't strengthen us to do. It is possible for us to have a successful marriage. We can achieve financial freedom. We can raise children that turn out right. We can befriend someone that is unsaved and bring them to salvation in Jesus. We can teach a Bible study. We can stop a bad habit. We can earn a good GPA. We can graduate from college. We can get a small business off the ground. People, we can do all those things and more through Christ. That's confidence. And if we lose confidence, as Nehemiah's people did, then we're going to be discouraged. Here are four practical things that could help boost our confidence. One, use visual encouragement. Visual encouragement. That might mean posting positive cliches and slogans and spiritual graffiti, sort of, in strategic places where we can see them to encourage us. Deuteronomy 6, starting at verse 4. Uh, this is the most important prayer in Judaism. It's called the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word translated as the word hear, H-E-A-R. Hear, that's the first word found here in verse 4 at the beginning of the Shema. These verses are prayed daily in traditional Judaism. Notice Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, hear from that Hebrew word Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Judaism is a monotheistic religion, meaning, mono meaning one, theistic from theism meaning God, monotheism means there is just one God. Now, Christianity is also monotheistic. The difference is we are monotheistic Trinitarians, meaning we believe there is one God, one being called God or Yahweh, and that one being God exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So there is a significant difference. The Trinity, or the triune nature of the Godhead, is characteristic of just Christianity. No other religious system believes in that concept. So we are monotheistic Trinitarians. The Shema was given to the Jewish people to pray as a reinforcement of 
monotheism. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Verse 6, and these words which I command to you today shall be in your heart. Move past verse 7 and on to verse 8. You shall bind them, meaning bind these words from the Shema, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Frontlets is unfamiliar to us. The frontlets mentioned here were a decorative band worn around the forehead. I remember sweatband people wore in the 70s, although I think Patrick Mahone still wears one. But anyway, um, a decorative band worn around the forehead, and these verses were imprinted on that frontlet. Those frontlets acted as visual aids to encourage a continued commitment to monotheism. Notice verse 9. You shall write them, them, these words from the Shema, on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So the Shema was also imprinted onto the doorpost and gates as a visual aid reminding people that Judaism was a monotheistic religion. That was a visual encouragement. I happen to think of another one. There are dozens of them. One more, though, is example is found in Joshua 4. We don't have time to turn there. Where the ancient Israelites had crossed the Jordan River to enter the land God had promised them. That was a significant thing. Uh, it was a miraculous crossing. The, the Jewish people crossed on dry ground. And uh, God wanted his people to remember that crossing. So God told them to remove 12 sizable stones from the middle of that river. He asked for one man from each of the 12 tribes, representative of those tribes, to find a large stone, remove it from the river, and then they stacked those stones on top of one another. Those were memorial stones. Those stones acted as a visual aid. Twelve stones, twelve tribes, the United Nation, Israel. It acted as a visual aid reminding the people of God's faithfulness. God was faithful to bring his people to the land God had promised them. And those stones served as a means of visual encouragement. Now, if you visit the ark in Kentucky, and it should be on your bucket list, you should go. Just as you enter the ark, you're going to see that stack, obviously not the original, but the stack, a replication of those 12 stones right there as a reminder, a visual reminder, a visual aid of God's faithfulness. President Truman had an unusual sign on his desk in the Oval Office. Some inmates from a medium security prison in Oklahoma had made that sign. That sign read, the buck stops here. Most of us have heard of that. There was a common saying at that time, passing the buck. And passing the buck meant passing the responsibility uh, for something onto someone else. Today we would use the phrase, kicking the can down the road. Same thing. Truman disagreed with passing the buck. He, he uh, said the president, quote, the president, whoever he is, has to decide. He can't pass the buck to someone else. No one else can do the deciding for him because that's his job. So he kept that sign on his desk as a visual aid to encourage him to do his job. And he did his job. It's interesting. Probably no one uh, knows uh, this, the back to that sign, read, I'm from Missouri. I have no idea when he turned it around, have no clue. Um, visual encouragement might re mean reading and then rereading, encouraging cards or letters. I have a number of file folders labeled personal correspondence. It's impossible for me to keep all my correspondence, impossible. Um, I get dozens of emails each day, most of which want something from me. I delete them immediately. I try desperately to unsubscribe. It never works, but I try. Uh, but I do get significant, meaningful correspondence. And I can't keep them all, but I keep those cards, letters, and emails that have especially encouraged me. And if sometimes I'm down, just down, 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 and feeling discouraged, I pull out one of those folders and start rereading some of that communication because it is a confidence builder and it reminds me that my efforts haven't been in vain. 
Second, read encouraging books. Read encouraging books. Remember this. Someone that can read and then doesn't read is no better off than someone that cannot read. Meaning literacy is no better off than illiteracy if it's not practiced. We should read. Read, read, read. Read some more, as books have a profound impact on our mental attitude. Each year, between 600,000 and 1 million books are published in the United States alone. Now, most of those, after a short period of time, will go out of print. But each year, up to 1 million books are published. New material. As someone said, so many books and so little time. Meaning so many books to read and so little time to read what we need to read. Third, listen to encouraging teaching. Listen to encouraging teaching. There are some excellent teachers and teaching out there. If your soul, singular source of spiritual information is me, you are in trouble. You need to diverse your portfolio of listening. Listen to other men and ministries. I can suggest some to you after the service. Um, there are men both past and present uh, that are outstanding. I listened to a sermon from David Jeremiah just this morning before even coming to church. Teaching is available from multiple sources. Sitting in a service, listening to a sermon uh, is one option. Listening to different podcasts uh, are valuable. Listening to audiobooks. Listening to encouraging teaching can be most informative, both informative and therapeutic. I remember someone from one of our previous congregations lost his mother unexpectedly. A total shock. He received that announcement. And then almost immediately after hearing that, uh, she was in another state. Almost immediately after hearing that announcement, this man sat down, he told me, and listened once more to a message I had brought on heaven. He had earlier heard that sermon, that particular sermon in person. But now it meant more to him. It was more meaningful and relevant because he just lost his mother. And he wanted to re-listen to it as a source of comfort and encouragement. Fourth, associate with encouraging people. Associate with encouraging people. I've said this often. There are three things, three things that help mold us into who we are. One, the books we read. That can include internet articles and journals, magazines and things. The books we read, our reading material. Second, the media we expose ourselves to. The media we expose ourselves to. And third, the people we associate with. Those three things help us become who we are. It is essential we hang around positive, optimistic, encouraging people and avoid those sad negative types because negativity is demoralizing and contrary to confidence building. I don't mean avoid reality. There's stuff that's happening around us that is negative on steroids, but we can still have a positive, optimistic perspective on them. Those people assisting Nehemiah on this project were just sitting there and staring at piles and piles of rubble and debris. Their confidence was gone and discouragement had set in. The fourth cause of discouragement Nehemiah's laborers experienced was the people had lost some security. The people had lost security. Notice verse 11. And our adversaries, the word adversaries means enemies, this would mean Sambalad and Tobiah, his antagonists, and those people and people groups that conspired with them against Nehemiah and this project. And our adversaries, our enemies, said, they will neither know nor see anything, meaning this is a, uh, a secret thing, till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. Verse 12, So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, From whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. So to make matters worse, this is what happened. There were some Jewish people that resided outside Jerusalem. These people had houses outside 
Jerusalem's city limits. It happened their residences were not far from some of these antagonists that have been upset at Nehemiah. And so these Jewish people warned Nehemiah on ten separate occasions, warned him that his enemies were going to ambush him and his men. This wasn't some idle rumor. This was an actual threat. Those Jewish residents from outside Jerusalem said, Nehemiah, listen, we have heard from reliable sources that this is a legitimate thing. These men are going to ambush this project. So just when Nehemiah wasn't anticipating trouble, those armies from Samaria and surrounding areas were scheming and planning to invade Jerusalem, to put a stop to that construction project, and to proceed to kill Nehemiah and all his construction members. The problem was, Nehemiah received that message from them. I guess there was a leak of some sort, because Nehemiah's men the people that were laborers on those crews had heard about that threat and were now nervous and terrified and afraid of an ambush. So those crews were hyper-cautious and always walking, watching out for someone that might be hiding around the corner. Now, it is true there was a guard stationed around the wall, but those men would have been outnumbered. No one on that job felt secure. And so discouragement set in. All of us have had have some tangible areas that give us a sense of security. Discouragement comes when those tangible areas of security are taken from us. I heard about a particular woman whose husband had died. I believe from a biblical perspective a man is responsible to provide a sense of security for his mate. I believe that's part of his responsibilities. Um, but her security had been in her husband to an unhealthy extreme. She literally trusted him to a fault. He did everything for her. She did almost nothing on her own. She trusted him for emotional, financial, material, and even spiritual security. Her total confidence and trust had been in him, and then he died. She couldn't cope apart from him. She literally became a recluse. She moved in with her daughter and son-in-law, and just hid in her room. She didn't want to eat or drink. She didn't want to communicate. She just shut the door, stayed in her room, and grieved. She became a recluse in her own room. Discouragement turned into manic depression, and in just two months' time, she died. The reason was that her sense of tangible security was gone. So what is the solution? If our security is threatened, what do we do then? Psalm 91, verse 2. In an ultimate sense, our security should be not in man, but in God. David said it like this, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge. A refuge is a condition or location of being safe and sheltered from pursuit or danger. There were actual cities of refuge in the Old Testament. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and he is my fortress. A fortress is a military, secured, fortified stronghold. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him will I trust. That means that our ultimate sense of security shouldn't be in a marriage partner, or a corporation, or a labor union, or in a financial portfolio, or in a pension plan, a 401k, or in tenure at one of the universities. Our security should be in God. Remember from the Peanuts comic strip, the character Linus? He always carried around a security blanket. He had to have that blanket. He started doing that in 1954, and he still carries it around. Any cartoon from Peanuts you see, there's Linus and his security blanket. People, God... God is to be our security blanket. And as we are more and more secure in Him, then discouragement ceases to be a problem for us. In anticipation of starting our another congregation, we moved ourselves and our two sons at that time more than 2,000 miles to another state. We did not have a single promise of financial support. We had no idea exactly when or where we would start our church. But we felt compelled that that is what God wanted us to do. 
we acted in faith because our security was in God. And God blessed that move more than we could ever, ever have imagined. We have from that pastorate decades ago still spiritual fruit that remains to this day. Numbers and numbers of Christians, people who found Christ there, who are now still serving, aggressively serving God. Someone asked me if at this advanced age, this post-retirement age, most men in pastorate, my age have retired, someone asked me if at this age I would ever consider starting over and creating another congregation from strats. Extremely difficult thing to do. I've been asked that. The, the answer is if, and this is a big, big, big if, if God made it so apparent, and I mean apparent like Daniel's time, handwriting on the wall, apparent. <laughs> if God made it so apparent that that was what he wanted from me, as crazy as this sounds, I would sell our house tomorrow and move to the opposite side of the earth to be obedient to Him and not be afraid to do so because our security is in Him. These laborers and construction crews in Nehemiah 4 were discouraged because they had lost four specific things. They had lost strength and vision and confidence and security. Ignace Philip Simmelweis was a Hungarian gentleman, born in 1818. In time, he graduated from medical school, received his medical license, and started practicing medicine as an obstetrician. At that time throughout Europe, an illness called childbed fever was causing the death of new mothers at extraordinary high rates. The hospitals of that age had a mortality rate of one in six mothers that died from that scourge. One out of six. Having a child at that time was a dangerous proposition. Dr. Simmelweis noticed that a doctor would go into a room where he would perform an autopsy on a cadaver. In particular, often, one that had died from this strange disease. That doctor would then go from that room to where he had just dissected that dead corpse, to another part of the hospital where he would examine pregnant mothers in labor and do so without ever washing his hands. And if he did happen to wash his hands, it would just be for a matter of seconds using some soap and water. That particular procedure, not washing one's hands, had been repeated for centuries. And the result was often death to the mother. This Hungarian physician was the first person in the medical profession to associate such examinations with resulting infection and subsequent death. So he instituted a new procedure, a new practice, and that was that each of the physicians under his direction were to wash their hands and instruments in a chlorine solution to disinfect them before attending to pregnant mothers. The mortality rate dropped dramatically after that. He and his associates delivered 8,537 babies and lost only 184 mothers. About 1 in 46 mothers died after this new practice had been instituted, whereas the mortality rate had been 1 in 6. There's a vast difference between 1 in 6 and 1 in 46. He then started lecturing and challenging the medical community. One morning he stood up in front of a group of doctors and said with all the passion he could muster, Gentlemen, please listen to me. This fever these mothers are experiencing is caused by decomposed material conveyed to the wound. I have shown how it can be prevented. I have proved all that I have said. He begged them to wash their hands and to do so with a chlorine disinfectant. But at that time... The concept of disease-causing germs was unknown, so medical professionals felt insulted at this announcement and rejected his findings and rejected his suggestion to wash their hands. 
Although he had succeeded in saving expectant mothers and had published numerous articles on hand-washing and antiseptic procedures, the medical community scorned him and mocked him. He was discouraged because no one would listen to him. And that discouragement turned into emotional exhaustion and prolonged depression. And then something pushed him over the edge. And he was tricked into being admitted to a mental institution, to an asylum. He tried to escape, and the guards beat him, restrained him, and then put him into isolation. He died an ironic and painful death in that mental institution at age 47. Ironic because it was a wound on his right hand sustained from that beating that turned gangrene that was never treated. That caused his death. The man that started the medical practice and procedure of washing hands using disinfectant to fight an infection died himself from an infection. It doesn't matter how noble the cause is. It could be building a sense of fortification and protection around Jerusalem as Nehemiah and his crews did. It could be raising G-rated kids in an R-rated society. It could be salvaging a marriage on the rocks. It could be breathing excitement into a dead congregation. It doesn't matter what the objective is, how noble it might be. All of us are susceptible to discouragement. None of us are immune to that malady. Someone said the true test of an individual's greatness is in what does it take to discourage him? What does it take? Let's bow our heads, would we? Our heads are bowed. Father in heaven, um, we've addressed a universal problem. No one, no one in this room is immune to discouragement. Discouragement happens. Multiple factors contribute to it. We've only mentioned four, but they were the four that contributed to Nehemiah's men and women who were discouraged. But God, help us to be aware of these things. Sometimes the cure to a problem is found in the cause. If we can minimize the cause, we can bring about a cure. We're going to see some of that next time. But Father, help us to know that we can be confident in Christ if we have Christ. And if someone in this room doesn't have Christ, I beg you that you would convict them of their sin and convict them of their need for a Savior, a forgiver. And I pray they would come to me after this service and ask me to set up a time and we can get together and we can show them exactly how they can have Jesus, exactly how they can have salvation, and exactly how they can have within them the solution to any problem because Christ is our solution. We can do all things God intends for us to do through His Son, Christ, who will strengthen us. Help us to remember that, never to forget that. I just hope and pray this has been of some encouragement, and I pray the same for next Sunday. Thank you again for your goodness and the opportunity to minister to these dear people, and I thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.